Uh, if we could put the smartphones in the smartphone bin. Does anyone want a, a schedule of the GSP? Sure. I think I have one. I think I have like five. You can have one for every day of the week. I'll have another one. <laughs> well, this one's not color, so. Only two people brought smartphones to class? Yeah, yeah. I need to turn it over. Wow. Three. Wow. Now I can go home and tell my wife that I've accomplished something in life. <laughs> okay. Today I've decided to wade into the controversial um, topic completely unnecessarily. Let's do it. So we're just going to dive in. Let's go. Today we're going to talk about non-Jews. Woo! That's nice. That's pretty nice. Okay. So a few things. A few things. Okay, a few things. Torah is a very broad thing. Um, it's so broad that it actually says that it, it's infinite. So there's no way I'm going to exhaust any topic in Torah. Um, there are many different w- ways to approach talking about how Torah views non-Jews. Um, there's the halachic dimension. There are all sorts of differing and seemingly conflicting statements of our sages. Um, there's Kabbalah. There's Chassidus. There's classical Jewish ethics. All sorts of stuff. And there's no way in what remains of this class an hour and 15 minutes I'm going to cover all of it. So I'm not going to attempt to do so. Um, I'm going to focus in this class specifically on the view of non-Jews um, from the perspective of Chassidus. Okay? And even within that, I'm going to limit to not give you not give you everything, not because can't, just because um, there's a limited amount of time. By way of introduction, there is an encyclopedia of Chassidus. Has anyone heard about this? There's an encyclopedia of Chassidus. Chabad Chassidus, just Chabad Chassidus, encyclopedia. I think you mentioned it once. Yes. It's called in Hebrew Sefer HaErchim, which literally means the book of entries, like is in an entry in an encyclopedia. Um, they have published eight volumes. The last volume contained the word Achdos. So in Hebrew, the first letter is Aleph. Encyclopedias are in alphabetical order. So the eighth volume, and they've just gotten to Achtos, Aleph, right? So it's like imagine an encyclopedia in English, and in the eighth volume, they'd only gotten to, I don't know, like, I don't know, Apple. <laughs> um, so, in which entry is non Jews under? Fortunately for us, non Jews are under the entry Umois Ha'olam with an Aleph, which means nations of the world. So they have already covered it. Um, Why not I don't know, but I'm, I'm very thankful that it's Umoy Sa'ilam. How big are they? They're about this big. <laughs> no, but it's actually more accurate because the word Goyim just means nations, and, and um, it's a euphemism for a non Jew. Um, because actually a Jew is also referred to as a Goy, like Goy Kodesh. Goy just means a nation. Um, they're about this thick in Hebrew. You see those those uh, big, tall, brown books over there? Yeah. Like those size. A little thinner. Yeah. Anyway, so, there's, yeah. so it's, the, the entry on non-Jews is, I think, like around 60 <laughs> pages long. Thank you. 
Nation? Guy literally means nation. So is it like a slang word for nacho? It is a no. slang word for nacho. Yeah, so it's like, <laughs> it is. Is goyim like nation? Yeah. Goyim is plural, nations. So when people say the goyim, they generally mean the non-Jewish nations. But technically speaking, context would determine what, what, what it's meant by. Whereas if you say umay sa'olam, which means nations of the world, yeah. that... Means ex- that means explicitly not Jews. Okay. So Goyim can mean Jews. In yeah, it rarely does. Yeah. But it Correct. has been referred to. Been yeah, referred yeah. We're called the Goy Kaddish. Abraham is the father of the nations. From the Goy Kaddish. Abraham and Goy, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. So right. <laughs> that's probably why it's under Umay Sa'ilum. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, while we're on the topic, just completely parenthetically, one of the difficulties in learning about Judy, in what Judaism has to say about non-Jews is that a lot of the Torah was censored. By Torah, I don't mean the Tanakh, I mean the rest of it. The, 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 the Talmud, the Code of Jewish Law, works of Kabbalah, Chassidus, a lot of them were censored. Um, and so a lot of the references to non-Jews were replaced with... Um, with an acronym Akum, which stands for worshippers of the stars and the constellations. Because then you have plausible deniability. We're not talking about you, our wonderful, friendly Christian neighbors. We're referring to, you know, those 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 barbaric star worshippers that lived in biblical times. What do you mean star worshippers? People you that worship astronomy. No, worship the stars. They would bow down and sacrifice goats to the stars. I was yeah. talking like, oh, they do have those too. <laughs> but, well, in, in, you know, in, in, um, you know in, in all of the places where, where there were major Jewish settlements for the past, you know, 1,500 years, star worship was not like an acceptable thing. So you have plausible deniability. So sometimes the non-Jewish censors would change the text to allow the book to be printed. Sometimes the Jews would self, self-censor. And that has created a lot of confusion because there's often... Um, a question if a particular text is referring to a non-Jew in general or an idolater in particular. Um, so, for instance, some laws are relate to non-Jews or some things relate to non-Jews as non-Jews and some refer to the fact specifically those non-Jews who are idolaters and then what's because of idolatry. So, it's not always clear when you have a text who it's referring to. In fact, even in Tanya, um, if you open a printed Tanya, it'll often say um, in many places, it will say where in the manuscript it said meaning it says in the printed text idolaters or star worshippers people worship the stars, but the actual written text that the author himself wrote said just nations of the world. There was a compromise that had to be made to allow it to get printed in Tsarist Russia. So, anyway, but now we have freedom of the press, so you can publish whatever you want. Except in Israel, where there is no freedom of the press, and you can't publish whatever you want. I can publish. And there was a rabbi who was arrested for publishing certain things. He wrote not nice, yeah, he wrote not nice things about non-Jews, and he was taken to court, and he was arrested. The whole thing, yeah. I didn't read the book, so I can't tell you exactly what it was. Um, but yeah. Israel does not have freedom of speech or freedom of the press. I think was Rabbi Ginsburg. He. He was arrested, and there was also another rabbi. I was thinking the other one. Yeah, there's also, um, also there are two rabbis, like, in some, like, Yeah. Anyway, Israel, please state. Yay! Okay. And there's, like, in prison? 
in prison or like no, no, no. no they were arrested brought in for interrogation oh, put pressure to like recant and not publish but, but were their books like published like officially like, like yeah but, yeah like but you I, buy their books I don't think uh, that particular book I don't I think oh, that particular book I think is out of print I don't uh, think they like, printed I, it. I, anyway I had mom, like to see but, it in the black market black market there's a black market for books <laughs> okay <laughs> okay <laughs> okay, so so we're gonna start off. We're gonna start off. Um, we're gonna start off with um, a basic thing, which it actually doesn't say in Torah. Oftentimes, people do not have questions, although they think they have a question. Oftentimes, people what people have is discomfort, dislike of something, and the way that manifests is a question. Sometimes that is manifest only to other people as a question. They'll ask it as a question, but they don't really have a question, and they know they don't really have a question. It's like a lawyer in court. They're, they're asked it as a question, but they're really just trying to show the other person is lying. And sometimes, it's not, they're not even consciously aware of it. They may genuinely think that they have a question um, because for whatever reason, they can't admit the fact that they are just have a problem with this, and that's that. Uh, they just don't like it. Um, and it's important to differentiate between what is an actual question versus what is just a statement of discomfort and dislike. Because a question can have an answer. A statement of discomfort and dislike is just, okay, well, you're uncomfortable with that. Not much like somebody else can do to fix that. Now, it is possible that someone is uncomfortable with something because they're misinformed about it. But it's also possible they're uncomfortable and they are informed exactly what it is and they don't like it. Okay. So, there is a question, in quotations, which is not really a question that many people have about the view of non-Jews in general in Judaism, in Hasidus in particular, which is that um, it looks, Judaism looks at non-Jews as being different and lower than Jews. Others can sometimes get put in the forms of, oh, Judaism is racist, which is not really an accurate way of putting it. The more accurate way of putting it is Judaism is ethnocentric, it's all focused on one particular group of people and their culture and their history and their peoples count for more, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Can you make a distinction between Judaism and Musar? And, and what? Musar. Judaism and Musar? Well, what do you mean by Musar? And then I can make There's a distinction. Like different types of Judaism. Like, well, I, like, I know like a lot, like not every sect feels that way. Like, they don't interpret the text in that way. Which text? The text to mean that like we're better than no, no, that, but that, so, so that's, so here's the thing. The where there's the better and what the better means that there's differing opinions of, there is no orthodox, that, that, that's, I mean, that those are verses in, 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 in the Tanakh. And those are clear statements in the Talmud. These are not like Hasidic, I mean, we can get to the Hasidic interpretation, which I'm going to get to and I'm going to discuss, but before we do that, these are things that are already in, you know, the, the Tanakh and in the, and I mean, if you want me to just quote a pasuk off the top of my head, "Rak um, um, God only desires your forefathers. And, and there's plenty and plenty of verses like this. There's plenty of statements of the Talmud like this. And there's plenty of discussions that how to properly contextualize those things and what they mean. But there is a basic understanding that God has a preferential relationship with the Jewish people that makes the Jewish people, in some sense, and we, and right now, being intentionally vague about this, what that means, in some sense. Superior. Now, is that some inherent thing like a godly soul, the way it's understood in Kabbalah and Chassidus? No, not everyone takes that approach. Okay? Mm-hmm. 
but um, the idea that how should I put this? God is 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 the equally the God of all peoples, and is just not a Jewish idea. And so, if the underlying thing that's the base of the question is the ethnocentricity of Judaism, then there's nothing I can do for you because that's it's like someone saying, "Well, I don't like the fact that there's God." Well, I mean, Judaism has God. That's part of Judaism. The idea that that God has a special relationship with the Jewish people that raises them to be above and beyond God's connection with the rest of the creation, including non-Jews, that's the whole story of the Chumash. That's theme throughout all the writings of our sages, and it's understood and explained in different ways. Yeah. So, like, when, like, my non-Jewish friends, I guess, like, Christian Catholic, um, when they say, like, yeah, we have, like, have you ever heard people say, like, yeah, we have the same God, but, like, you guys just don't believe the Messiah is here yet. Like, that's the basic, whatever differences. Like, they say we have the same God. So, are you saying we don't have the same God? No, we do have the same God. It's just one God. Yeah. We do have the same God. Yeah. Well, let me, 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 let me. Well, because you said he's not, like, I said, I said relationship. Okay, so, well, I thought you said he's, like, not equally the God of all people. Okay, so so, he's so more our God than theirs. Or yes, yeah, yes, okay. yes. If you want to think about it like this, like I'm your teacher. Yeah. And I'm also like you're my, a rabbi to them still, but you wouldn't well, teach them. The I wasn't. Thing. Well, that's that's also true, but let okay. me. I was going to use a different analogy. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I'm I'm your teacher, at least yeah. in some limited context. Uh, I'm also the father of my children, right? Okay. Okay. So in some sense, I. I mean, you, you, in some sense, you could you could you could use the word my in referring to me. Yeah. Say, oh, Rabbi Kaufman is my teacher. Yeah. And my children could use the word my. Oh, that's my father. Yeah. But the word my doesn't really mean the same thing yeah. if you okay. go into it, right? Gotcha. So, um, and this thing that we say, right? And we say we're very clear, right? We say that Hashem is the one who took us out of Egypt. He's the God of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Yeah. We, you should, you'll notice that. I mean, this is discussed in, in, in the class of Jewish philosopher, the, the Kuzari, that we do not make a big deal about the fact that God created the world. That is not, I guess, mm-hmm. the central basis of our connection with God. Um, yeah. Um, if, in our blessings, we say that he's our God first and only secondarily he's the king of the universe. Okay. Right. So it's not to say that there isn't a relationship. Yeah. Um, and I'm not now going to say that everything that big Christians think is correct. That's not. Mm-hmm. But... You know, the, 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 there is only one God, and any worship worship one God is, is there's only one God. You might be you might be mistaken about certain things. This idea is that from that relationship that God has with His creations um, is distinct, and I'll use the word inferior to His relationship that He has with the Jewish people. Now, specifically, what does that mean? There's a tremendous amount of disagreement and discussion on that point, right? Um, you know, and, and you can take different approaches. I'm not here to, like, push one or the other. Um, I can, like, but, but the idea that there is some sort of universalist view of Judaism um, that's just not consistent with, you know, the basic straightforward reading of, of the Tanakh, of our sages, of any of the medieval commentators... The works of the ethicists, the Bali Musser, like there is just not, there isn't anybody that has that take on it. I thought that it was we chose God. He was trying to find somebody that was like the God of So, so, so you, so. We're like, we're not like the chosen people, we just chose. So, so, look, 
We are. It does say we're the chosen people. That's it. It's right there in the in, it's right there in the Tanakh and in our prayers. Oh. That's why I said there's a lot of different discussions, a lot of different explanations. I'm not going to cover everything. Um, there is definitely are people who take the view that the relationship with that God has with the Jewish people is simply God perpetuating his relationship with the forefathers. And what made the forefathers special is that they devoted themselves to God. Um, and so God, a priori, didn't have any special relationship with the Jewish people, but because the forefathers and only the forefathers related to God in such a profound way, therefore God made a promise to make, perpetuate that relationship they had with them, with their descendants. But what follows from that, by the way, even if you take that view, um, and only that view, you don't take any other ideas into account, which is a little bit foolish because it's like Torah's whole picture. But even if you did that, Jews today are fundamentally different that we inherit the rights and obligations of the covenant with the forefathers and a non-Jew does not. And the only way they can get that kind of relationship is to, bo- is to be adopted into the covenant of the forefathers, which is what we call conversion. So in practice, there is a, there isn't, for, for Jews living post the forefathers or post the giving Torah, there definitely is an a priori preference to a Jew regardless of what they've done. Um, there's a, another verse in the, in the, um, a another, an a priori preference to Jews. A Jew is born, they are, are, have some sort of a superior relationship with God at birth over a non-Jew, even if you want to say it's only because that the Jewish people found God, because at least as it comes to that individual person, they're, they're inheriting that from the forefathers, they're not earning it themselves. And the non-Jew also doesn't have the ability to. You can't have a non-Jew nowadays come and say, I want to be like Avram and find God. You're not going to have that. As their sages say, Echad Hayavam, Avram is one, one shot deal, that's it. So, in practice, that's what I'm saying, if the underlying thing that makes the person uncomfortable, that's what's underlying the question, is the, the ethnocentricity of, of Jews being in some way superior to non Jews, there's nothing you can really do about that. If you get into the specifics of what does that mean and how does that work, so there's differing views on the matter. Um, No, so so this is not so. Tr- these are not so true, actually. The Talmud says that God gave up on the non-Jews. The Tractate of Vodazara. Think around page seven, but don't well, quote me on that. Right. Right. One, one, one would think that. However, when you actually look in the Talmudic text, it's very clear that that is not the case. Um, that those things are correlated with each other. Um, so much so, by the way, that even the limited set of elders they had, God decided, you know, there's actually distinction brought that the non-Jews basically could sin their way out of their obligation, which is basically the non-Jews didn't keep the seven laws. God kept punishing them. They kept sitting. God's like, you know what? We're done. You want to be sinners? You'll be sinners. And there's actually a verse, um, which I don't remember what word for word, but roughly translates as, because I loved you amongst all the nations, that's why I punish you. Um, the, the, in terms of the Rebbe, 
while it may be true that God, based on that Gemara, that God no longer is cares about whether the non-Jews as a whole keep the seven Noahide laws um, from that Gemara, two other things. Number one, as part of our relationship with God, that fact that there's someone who's disconnected from God even though they're not a Jew should bother us. So as part of our relationship with God, getting them to keep the seven laws, that's one thing. Um, and the other thing is, just because somebody is not being held to account doesn't mean that that's not, and doesn't mean that that's a good state of affairs. Like, yeah. just because God has given up on the non-Jews doesn't mean that that's an ideal, right? And, and who says we should, we should settle for the bare minimum? So they can, like, in theory, they can get it back. They can get back on track. Yeah. yeah. Especially, especially if you connect to the first idea. Um, and there's, there's, if you, there's a lot of um, discussion in some of the Rebbe's talks about exactly what the role of the seven Nochad laws are. But it's not simply a quantitative distinction. Um, and, whatever. Okay. Fine. Now, um, generally speaking, people tend to encounter this idea that there's some sort of superiority of Jews over non-Jews from um, the first place they tend to encounter it tends to be Tanya, um, either someone quoting Tanya to them or them having read it in Tanya. Um, There are two places, chapter one and chapter two. Chapter one... Um, Tanya says that the nations of the world, um, their souls come from the three impure klipas, which have no good whatsoever. It's a pretty harsh thing to say about somebody. Um, Say that somebody's wholly evil. And then chapter two, it says that a Jew has a second godly soul, which is a godly soul. Um, And non-Jews, by implication, don't have that. Okay. Which, now... One thing I personally just find amusing um, is that people often, in their rush to be offended or disturbed or dislike what they hear, they often don't think through what they've heard to make sure that they fully understood it first. How many differences are there between a Jew and a non-Jew in those two chapters of Tanya? Two. Two. Two distinct differences. What are those two differences? What are... No. But they come from... One is that they, they come from the three impure clippers and have no good in them. And the other difference is... That we have a godly soul. They don't have a godly soul, right? What does that mean by Nisham? Yeah. Okay. Which now means, before anybody has any follow-up question, how that be? What is it? It would behoove us all to make sure we have those two differences very clear, right? What those two differences are. Right? Because if you don't know what something is... Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to be offended by it. Right? It's like, and you do this with little kids. Um, like, you tell them, you can be first. I'm like, yay! And then they do everything to be first. No, first at what? First at cleaning up. Not, right? It doesn't make sense to react if you don't yet know what it is that you're reacting to. Now, does that mean that once you know that guaranteed nobody's going to be offended, everyone's going to think, oh, that makes so much sense, I, I, I love it? No, it doesn't mean that. But, basic, you know, Decency and maturity, one should first make sure they know what those two things are. And the fact that there are two already illustrates that, we're t- that it's a little more complicated because if there's two, dif- two differences here, um, you, have, you have to understand what is the difference between those two differences. So, 
we're going we're gonna to talk about the godly soul first because that's the one I want to spend less time on. Because it's just frankly less interesting. Okay. Um, so I'm going to use an analogy. And what is the difference between rocks and chimpanzees? They're made from the two, they're two separate. Now let me ask you a follow-up question. Is that the kind of question you normally think about? Yeah. Why not? Yeah, I do. You normally, you walk around here, what is the difference between rocks and <laughs> no, chimpanzees? Why not? Why not? Because you would never compare different. those Right, yeah. right. In your mental library of categorizing things, you didn't categorize rocks and chimpanzees together to begin with. Right. Um, Generally, when we are trying to explain the differences between things, that is because there's some fundamental reason that we think they're comparable to begin with. Okay? By the way, this is very important. Anytime you're studying anything in Torah, and the Torah draws a difference, a distinction between two things, what does that mean? They have a similarity. They have a fundamental similarity. And that similarity should be more obvious to you than the difference, such that the difference needs to be stated. What do you mean? Like what? Um... Like when the when the um, when when the Torah gives you laws, yeah, and tells you like you can do this, you can't do that, right? That means that beforehand we or it's drawing just to bring things up into categories. The reason why it's breaking those things into categories is beforehand I would think those things should all be categorized the same. Um, so, for instance, just an example from this week's parsha. Um, You've heard of truma? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Can a woman eat truma? Yeah. If she's the daughter of a If she's the daughter of a Cohen or the wife of a Cohen. Okay, let's talk, focus on the daughter of a Cohen. So a daughter of a Cohen can eat truma, yes? Well, actually, it's complicated. The daughter of a Cohen is, it goes in three categories. There's the daughter of a Cohen who has not yet been married. Okay. She can eat truma. There's a daughter of a Cohen who's married to a non-Cohen, like my wife. She cannot eat truma, but she's still considered a daughter of a Cohen for other things. For what? Laws of adultery, mainly. <laughs> um, so more risk, not less benefit. Right. Um, then there is, then there is, the ex-wife of a non-Cohen, who has children from the non-Kohen, or descendants, not even children. She's a Kohen? She was the daughter of a Kohen. She was married to a non-Kohen. She had children. She's no longer the wife of that non-Kohen. And her children, or children, the children of those children still survive. There's some descendants. Yeah. Okay. She cannot eat truma. What, not to be like, what if the kids are dead? If all the if the oh, kids yeah, are dead, the grandkids are so this is this is a fair question because there, there should be a fourth category there, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and so the Torah actually goes and mentions that I, I specifically didn't mention that fourth category, and the reason why is because here we raise the question: Is the woman who was married to a, the, the daughter of a coin who was married to a kohen, sorry, non kohen, married to a non kohen who has no surviving descendants? Should we assume that she's like the woman who never married the coin to begin with, the, never married the non coin to begin with? 
And then it's just obvious she gets the truma. Or should we assume? Okay. Right? Yeah. Was, which, which group of those three is, should, would we assume that she's like? And then, if we have an assumption, then we say if the law is different than our assumption, then the Torah needs to tell us the law. But if the assumption, if the if the law is like our assumption, the Torah can just stays silent. Okay. And so the, the 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 Torah assumes you would think that well, once she's married to a non-Kohen, she can never eat shroom ever again. Okay. And so the Torah actually has to explicitly state that if she's no longer married to okay. the non-Kohen and there's no descendants from that marriage, then she goes back to her father's house. She's friends with her father's family again, and then she can eat shroom. The point being is the very fact you have to state the laws because I would w- thought to group that, that fourth category yeah. with the other two. Mm. And then the Torah needs to come and tell me, don't do that. Yeah. So what is uh, eating truma? Um, the, when you grow ah, produce yeah. in yeah. Okay. So a lot of times when the things that the, the Torah says or doesn't say are because the Torah presupposes that you're thinking how you already have certain categories. And then when we're drawing to draw distinctions in the categories you already have, the Torah goes out of its way and says it. Most people don't say, oh, what is the difference between a chimpanzee and a rock? Because we never, we never group them together to begin with, yeah. in most contexts, right? Which is why it sounds like a setup for a joke or like a bad philosophy class. <laughs> okay, right? But it is a fair question to say like, what's the difference between a Japanese car and, and an American car? Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's a fair question. Like, many people don't know. They think like a car is a car. Like, what difference is it making? I have no idea. Uh, I, I also don't know, but... <laughs> I hear people say that, so assuming there's a difference. Mm. Big difference. See, there we go. It depends on how, how up you want to go. Like, I mean, with the concept of like a chimpanzee and a rock, what's the difference between them? We can compare a difference between them because they're both created by Hashem. That's right. That's right. And so really, the, really, the, it depends on context, right? You know, it's, whenever, whenever we're drawing a distinction, we're presupposing that you already have a certain set of categories in place. Most people, most of the time, didn't categorize chimpanzees and rocks in the same group. Now, in certain contexts, like let's say you're having a philosophy class. Right. In Tanya, in, in Tanya, in, in Tanya, and a lot of times in, in, in philosophy in general, where you're trying to change the way people are thinking, you, you, you'll do stuff like that. Okay. So getting back to the, the fact that in the first chapter of Tanya, a difference is being drawn between Jews and non-Jews. And in the second chapter of Tanya, it doesn't mention non-Jews. It's just say like the second soul... It's already mentioned that Jews have two souls. And the second soul of a Jew is this godly thing. So when we're talking about the godly soul, does it really make sense to talk about the differences between Jews and non-Jews? No. The godly soul is just... If you're talking about godly souls, then it's like non-Jews is not part of the discussion. Like someone's saying, we're going to now have a class about chimpanzee social behavior. And someone says, how do rocks feature into that? Where did that come from? We're talking about chimpanzees. Like, why did you bring up rocks? It's a different thing. Right? But if you're going to say, we're going to have a class about chimpanzees' social behavior, you're going to say, how does that differ from orangutans? I mean, that's okay. I can understand why you would ask that question. Right? You know, both primates. I understand, like, why... Are we talking about the ways it's uniquely to chimpanzees, or are we using chimpanzees as an example of primates in general? Like, these are... That's a fair question. Right. Okay. Now, why is that? Um... So, I'm going to give you a physical analogy. Um, you, you're, everyone's familiar with the idea that there's four physical elements. That's how they're translating English elements. Not to be confused with the, with the elements on the periodic table. Okay. Yeah. okay what are the four elements? Fire, water, and earth. 
Fire okay. If you had to break them into two groups, how would you break them? Doesn't it depend? That's right. That. Like I might say two and she might say two different. You're right. Two and two or three and two? Either. Three and one, yeah. <laughs> like there's, what is, what is it, like 16 different ways? Is that how? Yeah. I would break it into two and two. Oh, okay. Water, earth, fire, and air. The one you can like grasp, that you can touch, and like can be there, and the other two you're not able to. That's a good distinction. I mean, I've had my hands on fire chemically, you can protect my hands. But you can't actually hold it in your hand. Yeah, you'll just burn yourself. Is there a no, right but you can't Well, no, what you said is very accurate is that, that whenever you break something into a group, you have to have a context in which you're breaking them up. Yeah. Right. I like throwing that out there to see what people say. Yeah. Okay. The answer that's going to be helpful here is to put fire in a separate category. Okay. Why? Because fire is the only one that comes in and out of being. Okay. I don't want to get too far into the idea of elements, so we're just going to use the classic... Um, examples of the elements of the actual substances earth, air, fire, and water it's a little more the idea is more profound we'll just go with if you have a rock yeah you have a rock um, you can change the rock into other things but you never get rid of it of the actual rock okay um, we're going to ignore the fact there's something called nuclear fusion and fission okay we're just using the guys. A rock's a rock. You melt it down. You bury it. You mix it with something else, but it's rock. Water, water, right? Doesn't, yeah. Okay. Air, air. On the other hand, you strike a match. You have fire. You light a candle. You have fire. It goes out. Fire's gone, right? Fire is this kind of thing like shows up and then disappears. Okay. More interestingly, not only does it show up and then disappear, how long does it? How, what determines how long the fire stays for? The thing that it's burning. The thing that's burning. The fire will stay around only as long as it's destroying something else. Well, so there's only oxygen, which means air is also dependent on fire. Is also dependent on the air. Well, remember, I'm giving you the, the, this as an analogy for the godly soul, and I'm using the most classic way of explaining the four elements. So I'm completely ignoring all of modern physics for this. Yeah, and we can get even more technical if you want, but we're not going to. Um. It's it's more it's more we're using the analogy much just more have like a handhold on, on, on this idea. Don't okay. feel lost in the analogy. Yeah. So you basically have these things, three elements. You've got earth, air, fire, water. They're all stuff there in the world. They can mix, they can match, they can change. And then you've got this fourth one that says, Look, I don't mind showing up and hang out with you guys, but someone's gonna have to die if I'm gonna be here. And I only stay here as long as someone's dying on my behalf. And the minute you, the minute nobody's there to die on my behalf, I'm out. I'm gone. So, we have a name, right? The, the classically, what's the thing that we that we sacrifice to keep the fire around? Oil. That's the classic analogy. Take the oil, and you have to be willing to burn the oil so that the flame stays. Okay. Now, the godly soul. If anyone who knows any Tanya, the godly soul is compared to what? A flame. And that means, is it really a create? Is it really the same kind of thing as every other kind of thing? Just there? No. It's a kind of thing that, in order for it to be present in the world, something has to happen, and that specific thing that has to happen is something has to be destroyed or burnt. So you're really talking about categorically two different kinds of things. You're talking about there's a bunch of stuff that God created, 
Now it would be things like rocks and trees and cows and dogs and people. And there's this other thing called the godly soul. And it relating to those things is like a flame. And the flame only shows up if something else is being burnt. If something else isn't being burnt, it disappears. It doesn't exist anymore. So is the body or is the body the soul in this other kind of opposite form that keeps it alive? That keeps what alive? It's all alive. The flame's going. Oh, what is it that keeps it going? What's the oil? Judaism. Can it be self-sacrifice? It could, which is a form of Judaism and a pretty intense one. But that's like burning all your oil in one shot. And then, then it's gone. You don't need, yeah, I mean, that, that, that gets a whole discussion. But the reason I bring this up is that there's fire, it's radically different in the sense. It's not just something you can just take the existence of fire for granted and then talk about how it relates to everything else. Whether or not there's even fire there is an open question. Similarly, the godly soul is so categorically different and so unlike everything else that in existence, it really doesn't belong here. And the only thing that keeps it here is the spiritual destruction of other stuff. And so when you're talking about the godly soul, you have to completely change your paradigm, your perspective. So all we're saying when we say that a Jew doesn't have, that a non-Jew doesn't have a godly soul is like that whole other dimension of like this unworldly thing that can't really exist as part of this world unless something else is being destroyed. That's not part of their reality. It's just not. And if you're going to talk about that, that, only, that is only the, the purview of Jews. And if you want to talk about people in general, then you can't talk about that. There's like a toggle switch. You want to talk about human beings functioning as human beings, then leave the godly soul out of it. If you want to talk about the godly soul, leave non-Jews out of the discussion. It's when you talk about Jews as people, which is chapter one, and you're saying there's a difference on that human level that our animal souls are different, that's where things get more complicated and interesting. Because they have an animal soul, we have an animal soul. What makes them different? Yeah. So you have uh, the Jew and non-Jew, and both have first a type of soul, and then Jew gets only an extra soul. That's right. It's but not like di- the soul is different. No, the, no, both the two soul, the soul that we both have is different, and then the Jew has okay. the extra soul. You say you have no uh, uh, same soul, like it's totally something different. Right. Yeah. And can I just ask with it? The concept that we have the oil, which is mm. burning, that's why we have the godly, the godly souls, the fire, and the oil keeps the fire going, and our right. Judaism is the oil. Right. But the word distraction, yeah. like you need to destroy something in order for something to burn. So what are we, in that comparison, destroying? If we're saying that like your Judaism is keeping it alive, but you're not destroying anything. Sure. What? I, I threw that word, which is intentionally vague, called spiritual. Right? Spiritually, there is okay. something. There is something called klipa, whatever that is, and you have to destroy the klipa in order to keep your godly soul present and intact. But you need the Judaism. You need to have the. Then you're. Then you got a problem. That's which, which is why the altar says you shouldn't feel bad that your life is full of klipa. It's like if you want to have a candle burning for a long time, it's great that you're that you have a whole bunch of oil around. I life is full of clippers. Like that's not a problem. I mean, inherently, I mean, you could be depending on how you use it. Um, like, there's nothing. Like, like, so no. I mean, to put this very simply, is that whatever you, whatever magic happens when you light a Shabbos candle, does not happen when a non-Jew lights a Shabbos candle. 
and that's because they don't have that fight that that fire. So it doesn't. They could, they, your fire can burn the oil and bring that godliness in the world, and they have it. They don't have it, and you do have it. That's all. Then they get it. Yeah, they get it. They get Yeah, they get a godly soul. I always thought it was the idea that it was always within them, but they are the ones who discover. It's also that idea. In the process yes, process? yes. So the problem, the problem is that I, I'm being very vague. When I said they get it, like, okay, they get. It. Well, where was it beforehand? What does it mean now they have it? Right. So, so for instance, so a good way of thinking about it is like if you have a trust fund, you get it when you're 18. Right. But it's yours before you're 18. That's very nice. It's yours. Like, it's not anybody else's. But you don't actually have real ownership until... Right. And you, therefore, you can't use it. Right? Now, it definitely changes your behavior. The real knowledge that you have a large trust fund will change your behavior at 16, even though you have no access to it. Right? But it actually only really becomes yours at 18. In a similar sense, someone who converts, the fact that they have a godly soul on paper, even though they don't actually have it, may, could affect their life and cause them to want to convert. But the actual power to do what a godly soul can do, they only get that after conversion. Yeah. Okay. So the really interesting one is, is, is the animal soul, the human soul, the natural soul, whatever you want to call it. The thing that's discussed in chapter one of Tanya, where we're saying a non-Jew has one, a Jew has one, and somehow ours is not all bad, and theirs is totally bad. And how do we understand that? But the godly soul, just there's this thing, which is not part of the normal order of created reality that... Jews somehow are able to tap into and access and utilize through Judaism. Non-Jews don't have that. And it's just black and white. There's not much else to talk about. Okay. Yeah. I once heard that it's uh, impossible for non-Jews to keep the system of the Is yes. true? Yes, it says in the Talmud. Is that like uh, something else that is like impossible? So... Do you mean by impossible meaning they're not allowed to, or impossible that it's like physically impossible? I don't know. I just heard it's so it is forbidden. It is forbidden for non-Jews to keep um, certain mitzvahs. Um, of the the the, the mitzvahs that what mitzvahs that are explicitly about the special relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people, non-Jews are not allowed to do, such as Shabbos, um, learning Torah, the few mitzvahs like that. Other mitzvahs, yeah, they're not allowed to learn. Any parts of the Torah that are Jew-specific. So if they want to learn about the unity of God, that's fine. If they want to learn about... So they're allowed to do certain mitzvahs? Is that yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Shabbos not. What, is, what does that like mean uh, for them? And are they physically able? It means, like, for instance, when a non-Jew is converting and he has to keep Shabbos, he's yeah. not allowed to keep a full Shabbos. But he's still doing a mitzvah? No, he has to like when when a non-Jew is like learning to convert. Yeah. So the rabbis will tell him like you have to live as if you're a fully Orthodox Jew. But on Shabbos, like when no one's looking, turn on and off a light or something, so you're not actually keeping Shabbos because you're not allowed to actually keep Shabbos yet. Yeah. Um, Study. Then they're allowed to. They're allowed to. But they're allowed. They're allowed. There's 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 learning for under what a non-Jew is allowed to learn. There's what a Jew's required to learn, and there's learning for conversion, which is like an in-between category. They can't just like sit and like learn for their heart's desire. Right. And they're yeah. The 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 Talmud equates a non Jew learning Torah to adultery. Yeah. That's pretty bad. Well yeah, but 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 that's the Talmud. It is severe, but that's also the Yeah, but that's also the Talmud standard um trope of of anything of taking something which isn't yours and that kind of a violation. 
they use adulteries or class as, as like there's certain things that you need to know like that's how that's how when you when you when you take something which isn't yours or not at the right time it's inappropriate they often will use that as the analogy so it's used for all sorts of things um, so like even Andrew has his doctorate in Judaic studies or Tanakh or whatever is that considered learning Torah? you have to ask a competent rabbi who's an expert in these fields but um so, so the joke, the joke, the joke is, is that the, the this guy learning with his with his study partner for twenty years, you know, daily learning Gemara in depth. And after twenty years, I'm marrying off my daughter, and I want, you know, I want, uh, I want you to uh, be one of the witnesses at the marriage ceremony. He says, oh, I'd love to. There's technical problems. I'm not actually Jewish. What do you mean you're not Jewish? We learned that a non-Jew who keeps Shabbos is liable for death. That doesn't mean the court actually puts him to death. But whatever. So I, I see you. You observe Shabbos. He says, no, no, no. I carry a key in my pocket. And then the, the, he says, what do you mean carry a key? There's an Eruv that permits carrying on Shabbos. He says, what are you kind of person you think I am? I don't rely on that Eruv. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Certain jokes are very culturally dependent. <laughs> don't try and explain that joke to your Christian friends. I don't think they would understand it. Um, okay. So, getting back to the actual topic, the the the, the Jew and the non-Jew who both have what's called the animal soul, the vital soul, different des- descriptions. In Tanya, it says that Jews, theirs is a mixture of good and evil, and non-Jews, it's a just pure evil. Aimbem Toiv Kla has no good in it whatsoever. Okay. Now. What we're going to do is we're first going to add a little bit more information. Um, and to preface. When the main topic is one thing, and you bring up something else parenthetically to illustrate a point. Do you go into all the details of the parenthetical thing? No, unless it's this class, where we get sidetracked a lot. <laughs> but generally, that is not a good way to teach. This no. class is like the least really? sidetracking. Really? Right. You guys, this yeah. is being recorded. <laughs> 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 okay, but anyway, it's not a, it's, it's, it's not a good, it's, it, you know, it, it's not a good way to get that idea across. Moreover, not only do not go into all the details, is it a fair teaching method to even not just not to go into all the details, but actually to oversimplify or possibly exaggerate something in order to in order to make a point if that's not the main topic that you're teaching? Is that a fair thing to do? Right. If I'm trying to teach you, if I'm trying to teach you something, and I'm trying to highlight this, and so I bring up something else as a foil, as a contrast, I may take that other thing and oversimplify it. It may even make it a little more extreme than it actually is to highlight the point that I'm trying to make about the other thing. And as long as it's clear that that's, we're not actually getting to all of the details of the other thing, um, it's not a problem. The problem is when you actually think that that becomes the main topic, then you have this warped and twisted thing. What is the point of the first chapter, the second half of the first chapter of Tanya, where this whole non-Jew thing is being discussed? What is the point? Is the, that the place where the Alter Rebbe wants to talk to you about 
non-Jews and their souls. Yeah, it's the same idea as the Rachman and Shippen's love. Like, primary versus primary. Like, they're the same on the outside, but there's something distinct on the inside. You need to talk about the actual differences. Are. But what difference does he want? What does he want you to come to walk with an understanding of? Of the Jew or the non-Jew? No, but I'm talking. No, this is, not, this is where we're not talking about the godless soul. This is where he's only talking about the animal soul. Wait, what? Sorry. When in, in chapter one of Tanya, the Altar starts talking about your animal soul, and in that context, he mentions, "Oh, and yours is different than the non-Jews." Is he trying to tell you about the non-Jews soul or your soul, your animal soul, not your godly soul? Godly soul hasn't talked about yet. Yeah, which ones? Which is he trying to tell you about you or about the non-Jew? The non-Jew. The non-Jew. Why would he tell you about the non-Jew? So that you can. Why, like, wh- what? You should understand him. Why he's different than you. Why? why? So you're saying that only people understand But why? What does that have to do with Tanya? To understand why Jews have to be Jewish, maybe? Is that what oh, the so, book so, is about? So, no, that's not what the book is about. The book of Tanya is about how do, you, how do you have a deeper connection with God as a Jew? Yeah, so he's going to explain, like, don't look to your non Jewish friend because you're different? No. So it's all for us. It's all discussing the non-Jew. There, the Alter Rebbe discusses the non-Jew only in contrast. It oversimplifies the non-Jew's soul. And non-Jew doesn't oversimplify. He takes the most extreme view. And the reason he's doing that is because he's trying to highlight and make something clear about a Jew's animal soul, not really getting into all the nuances of what's going on with non-Jews. In fact, most of Chassidus is that. That's one of the reasons why you try and figure out what Chassidus' view about non-Jews. It's very annoying because there is not the Chassidic discourse which says, to understand the non-Jew. It's, just, it's almost always brought up tangentially in the context of explaining something about a Jew. And so you get like this like, little glimpse and you have to like, learn everything and put it all together. Okay. So what is the point, the, the basic point that the Alter Rebbe wants to make about... Um, Jewish animal souls in chapter one. What is the point that he wants to make? We are made from something else than non-Jews. No. Nope. We don't. We're not made from the klipa. No, no. The exact opposite. He wants you to make sure that you are made from. You no, know, you are made from the klipa. See, a non a Jew who hasn't learned Tanya, he's like, you know what's so great about being Jew? I learned in the Talmud, and I saw in the Code of Jewish Law. It says Jews, they're good people. We're good people. It says, it's even the code of Jewish law. Did you know that? Very nice. Yeah, we're good people. Then also say we're thieves. We do tend to be good people. No, we are good people. Fact. What is the, practi- what is the practical relevance? You know, like, what halachically, like, who cares? What, like, how do you, what difference does it make whether we're good people or not? What, what Jewish law? You want to keep... Being good people. So no, a law, a law. Marry Jews, so you can also be good people. Close. It's the other way around. What happens if there's a family? They go to shul, they dive, and they put on tefillin. They do everything they're supposed to do, yeah. But they're nasty people, and not just one person or two people or three people, but the whole family's like that, and the grandparents like that, and the great parents like, that. and that's no like these are na- that that family. They're just nasty people. That one family in town, like they don't give tzedakah to anybody. Like when they, and it's not like one one person. It's it's this. They're known as being having no compassion, no empathy, no sensitivity, constantly causing trouble with everybody, and it perpetuates over a few generations. 
You know what the code of Jewish law says? We should assume they're not really Jewish and don't marry into their family. Because Enki were good people. What? Because, because they, they, so people do bad things, but if you see perpetuating over generations that people are just the, the whole family is just nasty what people. If one person... So I'm not. It's not a halacha. You can look at it as a whole discussion. <laughs> how bad? What exactly? It's like no. It's actually discussed in the code of Jewish law. How bad do they have to be? How many generations? All of it. But it's, it's called, yeah. I really like this concept. Has sure. this ever happened? One would assume. Like, this has never has been recorded that, like, oh, this family has uh, been knocked out. I can't think of an example. Isn't there that story, though, about a boy who killed birds or something? I don't know, sorry. There's, what? A, there's a story about a boy in school, and he was in a Jewish school, and he was, like, killing animals. Sociopath? And they, like, looked into it, and there was something I don't know. off in his paper. Like, I don't know. Okay. That being... Okay, so... Okay. So... So a Jew, now again, remember Tanya, the way the format that Tanya is written is written for a fully committed Orthodox Jew. So while the ideas there are applicable to even a Jew who's not like that, they're not fully committed to Orthodox Jew. The style in which it's written is that way. And that's always important to remember is that the Alter Rebbe is never talking to the person who's saying, well, how, why should I keep Torah mitzvahs? That's not the style in which the book is written. The style in the book is written, I really want to keep Torah mitzvahs. I really want to unlock the deep connection that a Jew is supposed to have with God and I don't know how to do that. But of course I'm fully committed to all the Torah, mitzvahs, the Bible, the, 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 the Talmud, the Torah, Jerusalem, blah, blah, blah. So the person thinks, you know, I got a head start because it says that Jews are inherently good people, right? So that must be my inner holiness at work, right? That, that natural compassion that Jews have. And what does Alter ever tell you in chapter one? That natural compassion that you have is klipa. It's unholiness. It's part of the it's part of the evil side. The natural connection to Hashem. The natural connection desire you have to be nice and sensitive oh, and compassionate. I don't understand. I thought that was what So this is exactly it, in the point that the author is making in Tanya is that you think that that's what makes you special. And the first point that he says is that that actually. The fact that you think that. No. No, that natural tendency that Jews have to be kind and compassionate is klipa, is not holy. Just, it's, it's made of the same No, and that's why it has to qualify and say, when I say it's unholy, don't go all the way to the extreme like a non-Jew. He's, in other words, what he's saying is like this. You walk in to chapter one of Tanya, having studied Jewish texts, under the impression that the natural Jewish tendency towards compassion is a sign of holiness. And the altar in chapter one says, no, it's not. But, don't take that to the extreme like it's the non-Jews where it's like completely, uh, it's completely the anti-holiness. It's not holy, but it has the potential to be elevated and redeemed as the altar goes on to explain. Which means the Alter Rebbe is kind of using the most extreme example of the non-Jew to qualify his putting down the Jew, right? This is what people, if you read the chapter, what he's trying to do is trying to say, we might think, again, if you're familiar with Jewish text, that what makes us so special as Jews is we have this natural tendency towards kindness and compassion. And that must come from our inherent connection to God, our godly soul, our holiness. And what does the Alter Rebbe say in Tanya in chapter 1? You just made something else. No, he, chapter 1. Chapter the 1, he says that natural tendency. Yeah, the, they are from not good clippers. So 
those are, those are from the Klippos. Those are from the side of unholiness. Yeah. But don't go so far to say that it's like pure evil. It's not like that. Okay. And then in chapter 3 he says, your holiness comes from this totally other thing called the godly soul. And then we're going to talk about that for the rest of the book. Wait, did he say Jews, non-Jews are bad? No. Okay. So now, now we can put Tanya on the side because since Tanya wasn't actually talking about non-Jews, we need to actually go and see what Chassidus says more thoroughly about non-Jews themselves. Using chapter 1 as like your primary starting point for discussing non-Jews is a little bit this is a problem. disturbing. Take that time behind you. Is there number one? Chapter one. Um, where it starts, start reading from where it says, uh, even the good character traits of a Jew. And that's where you. See it? Yeah. Mm. Even the good character traits of a Jew, like compassion and kindness, also come from this, uh, this uh, soul from the other side, because it's a mixture of good and evil. Right. So he's qualifying that he's saying that those are not that's not reflective of this this godly soul we're going to talk about later. That's no, all coming from your soul. Okay. From this stem, from this soul stem, also the good character traits which are found in the nature of Israel, such as mercy and benevolence. Because the case of Israel, this soul of is this soul of Klippa is derived from the Klippa's Nog, which also contains good. So he's saying this soul, right, which we just gone previously said is all your bad character traits, also the source of also your good character traits. None of this has anything to do with holiness. Right? But it's not, when we say it's, so when we're saying it's Klippa, it's, it, we're putting it down, but then we're like putting a floor underneath, not that far down. It's not really, the topic there is not really to understand the non-Jewish soul. Is that that yeah, because the non understanding the non Jewish soul makes no difference to us enhancing our connection to Hashem? So Not in the in topic, this context in this of context. the Tanya right. saying right. like right. of us. Right. I have a question. Once someone told me that non Jews don't have a soul at all. Yeah. People but say a lot of things. There was not someone who was uh, like Hasidut. Well, they probably when they said soul, they probably meant godly yeah. soul, not okay, animal. Is it a Hasidut thing that Jews that non Jews even have a soul, or is it like in Talmud? The problem is the word soul. The word yeah. soul means so many different things. You need to know exactly what the person meant by means by soul. Maybe it was neshama. I don't know. Is that, would that make some difference? It does make a difference. In fact, different sources will use the words nefesh and neshama differently too. It, walking around saying a non-Jew doesn't have a soul is both true and false. Entirely depends what you mean by soul. Okay. Mm, what did you say? Neshama. Yeah. It's same thing. Depends what you mean by neshama. Oh, nefesh. Saying something. So, do you, is it like, is it like said, does it if say you want, somewhere in like not Hasidic texts that non Jews have a soul? Yeah. Okay, it does. Rocks okay. have souls. That's how they're similar to it. What do they have souls? Rocks. Rocks, okay, no. 
No, that's what I'm saying. I, let me get back on the main thing about non Jews. Non Jews. That's what you're and referring to. What do you mean by soul? The word soul? Is, that means just a soul. I don't know what it's like. Okay, well, so we don't know what it means. We can't decide which, whether they have one or not. Okay. Okay. So, for starters, okay. There are. What? Right, but that's in being said in contrast to the Jew's soul, and the point of the the point is to discuss the Jew's soul, and the Jew's soul is to tell you that even your good characteristics come from the animal soul, not the godly soul. Like here, here's the thing that if you if you tell a person, oh Tanya says you have two souls, yeah yeah I know. Sometimes I feel like being nice to people, and sometimes I feel like being mean to people. So no no no, those are both the same soul. There's part of you that wants to be nice to people, the part of you that wants to be mean to people is the same soul. It's the animal soul. I have just a problem. Yes. Because, um, is it the character, we're we also talking about bad and good, but I feel like character traits, that bad and good a bit, you know? That's, what does that do with the soul? Because this is going to be a soul. two-part class, I think. I'm sorry? This will be a two-part class. Yeah, uh, yeah maybe. <laughs> well, there's 15 minutes left and we still didn't get to the meat and potatoes of things. Okay, but is the soul of someone doesn't have effect on the character traits? We will get to that, but not... But I am very... I know, but, but I have to go in order. Curious. I know, so now you have an incentive to come to the next class. I always do. <laughs> All right. Okay, so the first thing we have to, first thing we have to do... I don't believe that. What? I don't believe uh, the soul has an effect on the character traits. Okay. Okay. It's just how you're raised by your parents. It's genes you have. Okay. We'll see what you say. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't put that as a question then, because you know, once it's what you believe, like I, okay. <laughs> I have a shirt that says, "Just because you think I'm, a, just because you believe that you're a unicorn, doesn't make it true." <laughs> I said that a lot. There was a period of time where I said that a lot. The men's programs, so they made a shirt of it and gave it to me. Um, I was wondering where you applied that shirt. I, I've never actually worn it. It's in my closet. I like the fact that it exists. I think show and tell Maybe next, next week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> On Thursday. No. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned that in the first chapter of time, the altar brings the most extreme yes. part of the non-Jew or the View. Okay. So let's start with let's start with a basic a, a basic thing. Okay. The way God created the souls of people is that the souls of people can broadly be broken up um, into two categories. Okay. There are those people who the, the closer they are to God I'm going to use this word although I don't really like it the happier they are and there are those souls that the closer they are to God the more miserable they are this is true? yes, like, yeah. yes. is it only about Jews or Jews? one second I didn't say anything about Jews, non-Jews yet. Okay? There are some people 
God created them in such a manner that the closer they get to God, the happier they will be. And there's some people that the closer they got to God, the more miserable they will be. Now, now the question is, why would being closer to God make you more miserable? It depends on what. If you're like, is this talking about like the fact in, in this physical world that like, in what sense is it saying the closer you are to God? Okay. So like, in like death, it's close to Hashem, but... So I'll give you, a, I'll give you an, an example, okay? Imagine you worked for a big company. Yeah? And you have a boss, you know, some, some little manager, right? They have the corner office on, their, on the floor, right? And they gotta, you know, make their own schedule, they get to... Yeah. How do they feel showing up to work every day? Pretty good, right? Okay. Now, if they have to give daily reports to the CEO and they're going to be evaluated on their performance on a daily basis, and so every day they have to take a schlep up to the you know executive suite. What happens to their mood as they move up from you know, the corner office on the floor there, the middle manager, to that executive suite? It depends on the person. It does depend on the person. Either it's great, that's where I'm going to be in the future, or be a lucky I have this office. What do you mean, physically move up? Like, no, they're physically, they're going up the elevator. and Because on that floor, they're like the master of their little fiefdom. And then as they go up... Right, they, they, right. So as they go up, they actually start to feel how low they really are, ironically. Now, some, they, can com- they can comfort themselves, like, oh, I'll be there one day. Or they can resent that, why am I not there? But what's interesting happens is that the more they move, the more they get greater proximity to the people higher up on the chain, the more they realize how they're on the bottom of the chain. That's also from perspective. They don't look back to where they started from. That's true. That's true, but 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 but, 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 you're, you're, but you're still compensating. In other words, in the, the very fact. In other words, if if they had a magic wand, the idea would be that there would be no one higher than them on the totem pole. That would be the idea. But they can't. So the next best thing is to pretend it doesn't exist, which they can do when they're managing their own little employees. But when they go up, they can't do that either. So now they have to take some sort of like strategy of how to like put it in a context so they're not so upset about it. But deep down, they're like really, they're, they're, they're not happy that there's someone else high up. Okay. Now. Why is that? Why is that? They just want to be the best. They want to be the best. Ego, pride. Right? Right? Yeah, it's normal. It's normal, right? We wouldn't say there's anything wrong with that person. It's like, why is it that this punk person in my class always with A's and I always never get the same grade? You know, it's the same. So now, many of us, we are perfectly fine with God when we don't really think about God as a being when we think about God as an ATM machine. I mean, you get stuff from God. So you can't use that to evaluate your view of God. 
God gives me food. Well, I love God. No, you like having food, and if God's one buys you food, then great for God. Okay? Nobody loves ATM machines. They like having cash. Right? If you have cash, then that's fine. Okay. When you start to think of God as a being, you say, wait a minute. Wait. Let me get this straight. There's a being who doesn't have to answer to anybody. Gets to do whatever they want to do. Doesn't depend on anybody for anything else that they don't want to. And they set the rules for my life and determine what I can and can't do, what I'm allowed to and not allowed to do, what I achieve and what I don't achieve, and expect me to conform to their dictates. And if I don't, they're going to make horrible consequences for me. If you just think about it in that context, how does that make you feel? Yay, God, it's so wonderful. I love God. So there are some people that, again, take out the fact that God provides, because okay, everybody likes getting stuff. That's a separate issue. Okay? And think about God as a being. There are some people that are created that they are literally incapable of being happy of the fact that God exists. In fact, in their ideal world, if they could wave a magic wand, they would get all the stuff that God provides without God. That would be better. Right? What's better, to work for a boss or to be independently wealthy? Okay. So what's better, to get all of your, the stuff you need from God or just to have it without having to have it from God? Okay. So these people okay, will, at least the way God, as God created them, they will conform to God's dictates. They will comply with God. They will obey God. They will have a fear and respect of God because God does run the world. But the best that they can achieve is compliance. And deep down, there's an underlying resentment of why do I have to be, why do I have to be dependent on God? Why does there have to be something? Why? It's not fair. Why does he get to be God and I have to be, you know, a limited created being? And some people are created with the uh, unable to break out of that perspective. That's one kind of person. Okay? There's another kind of person. And the other kind of person has the view that the greatest gift that you could possibly have is to have God in your life. Not because of what God provides. Think about it like this. Um, is it good to have friends? Yeah, it's good to have friends. Why is it good to have friends? That's right. Now, if the only reason why you have friends is that you're not supposed to be alone, how picky are you going to be with your friends? Not at all. Why extremely picky? Okay, that's not that picky. I mean, unless you're like really, really idiosyncratic. There's like, there's a decent subset of the population numbering in the millions of people that you can get along with. That's true. But it's but it's not but it, but but it's not like they're, they're, it's just a pragmatic thing. Like if you can't get along, you can't get along with them. It's not like in principle that you wouldn't be their friend. It just doesn't work for whatever reason. Okay, so you don't have to be picky about it. Like, oh, I can't be your friend. Why? No. But 
You really shouldn't actually like if it, like for. That was exactly the example you used. If if you if you're eating food in order to live, you really shouldn't have a picky about what you eat. Keep you alive, good. fine. There's a now. Now. There's another reason to have friends. Okay. The other reason to have friends is because. The, the person having them in your life raises, the, raises your life up to a higher level. You have a, just a different quality of existence because they're in your life. And that really does depend on who your friend is. Okay? In other words, there's a human need not to be socially isolated, not to be alone. And for that, it really doesn't matter as long as you can get decently along with people. I mean, this is why you take any large enough group of people, you throw them, you know, in, 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 a, in a group for a long period of time, right? They, they try and figure out how to be friends with just some amount of people because it's like, you know, eating. Like, you got to have people that you're you know, friendly with, you talk to. That's why you solitary confinement is torture. But there's a totally different idea that you want this person in your life specifically because them being in your life raises the quality of your being or of your existence to a whole new level. And that, you really should be picky because you want to make sure that person has something about them that really raises you up. Okay. So, and it's very important to realize those are two different, those are two different reasons to have friends. Okay. One is really a basic, one is actually a survival thing. Like one actually can seriously affect your mental health. If you don't have people that you just like socially like being around and interact with, you're going to suffer. You're not going to be a functioning being. But there's a totally separate thing to find saying this person has something unique about them and that when I'm close to them and they're in my life, my life is elevated. And it could even be so elevated that losing this person means my life is no re- doesn't even seem to be worth living anymore. That's a much higher, deeper kind of friendship. Okay? Now, some souls are capable of appreciating that having... A connection with God is what makes life worth living. They're not resentful that God exists. They're not jealous that God is independent and they're dependent on God. They don't view God as like somebody that they have to conform. Like, the fact that there's God, that's great. Because God is... Having, having a rela- connection with God is something that... It, that it's a beautiful thing. And, so much, and they can get so deep to think that that is the most, that thing is, is so powerful, so wonderful, that life without that is really, really an empty shell. Okay? So you have these two kinds of, one person, the very fact that, that God is always going to be on top of the totem pole and they will always be second, infuriates them, bothers them to no end and so they can never actually be at peace with God, never can actually value God, never can actually be grateful for God. They might be grateful that God threw them some, something that they needed. That God did something for them. But even that, they res- resent the fact that they needed God for it. They wish they could have taken care of it themselves. Is it normal to have that issue sometimes and not all the time? Right. Like, you know, at the end of the day, you know that you're not in control of your life. So that can bother a lot of people. That's just unnatural. Yes, it is. I mean, I, 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 but, and I, the, 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 Now, when, 
When we talk about Jews, all Jews are always in the second category. And there's, there's no such thing as a Jew that is incapable of having an appreciation of God as on a human level and wanting God to be part of their life. Setting your godly soul aside, just the animal soul. There's no such thing as a Jew who's incapable of that. Every single Jew is capable of appreciating that God, the best thing in life, on, on, on a human level, is that there's God and I can relate to God. That's something, that capacity is true of our animal soul, of every single Jew. Well, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you, it's only that. Yeah, well, let's just take the other example, right? Take the person who went off the derech and 55 years later they come back, right? If you ask them, you know, halfway through, are you coming back, right? People, people's, when you, whenever you make statements about what is possible or impossible, you have to differentiate between subjective statements and objective statements. Subjectively, there are many things that are impossible for a person to do because they couldn't bring themselves to do that now where they're at. That doesn't mean objectively it's not, that power is not within them and they need to go through things in order to discover that. But if it's not objectively within you, you can go through any, any process you want. It's not there. Right? In other words, you could say like this, all people are, all people are capable of speaking. I know people that can't speak well. Yeah, I also do. Some of them are infants. Some of them are diseased. Some of them, you know, I've read about people that like... But here's the thing. All of those things, if you were to modify those circumstances ever so slightly, right? You take the, the child, let them grow up. You take the sick person and you heal them. You take the person who grew up in the wild and you retroactively raise them in, in human civilization, all of them would speak, right? Whereas if you take a tree, it doesn't matter what you do with the tree, it's not going to start talking. It's just not there. So there is a capacity that exists in certain people that they can value having God in their life and and it just get that the fact that and, and, and that God is, is always the top of the totem pole, that they're always dependent on God, that's just a non issue. That it's not fair. Just, no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful there's God in my life. And then there are people who are incapable of that. They are just flat out incapable, it will not happen no matter what. They can believe that there's God, they know there's God, and they can be perfectly righteous because they'll comply with God because they know God runs the world. And they know that God ultimately dictates what's, what's going to happen and they want to be on God's good side. But deep down, there's an underlying resentment of God and they wish that they could just have whatever they want and whatever, do whatever they desire independently without having to rely on God or having God dictate to them. And they're incapable of moving out of that. That is true of some non-Jews. Now, is that some all non-Jews? Most non-Jews? A minority of non-Jews? My impression from some of the things that the Rebbe said in Sichas is that that has historically been in flux. Was the more Jews have done Torah and mitzvahs, the fewer and fewer, the less and less that's a description of non-Jews. In other words, when the world started out, the overwhelming majority of non-Jews were in the cat, were people who were incapable of really having an appreciation of God and valuing God. They could comply with God. And as we move closer to the era of Mashiach, that balance shifts. 
So you really have to understand that in Chassidah's views, there's actually two kinds of, Jew, of, 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 of non-Jews. There's non-Jews, which are called the righteous of the youngster Gentiles. And those are people who are, they, they have a positive view of the fact that they're created by God. They would not want to erase God from the picture. And then you have um, the other kind of non-Jew, which could be aware of God, believe in God, even worship God, but deep down would always prefer to be able to be independent from God, if they could. Okay? And so it's already that difference between the, the two kinds of non-Jews is just not even discussed at all in Tanya, but it's discussed other places in Chassidus. And so you can't really have an honest discussion about non-Jews and what just sort of think about them if you think that all non-Jews um, only fit into one category. So there's like all Jews are capable of having that appreciation of God. And we're talking about the, the animal soul of the Jew, not the human being part, not that godly fire part that nobody knows what it is. And some non-Jews are capable, not all non-Jews. The non-Jews who are capable, they're capable of being fine with God or appreciating God? Appreciating. Remember, always remember this rule. Ambivalence is either covering up for resentment or undeveloped appreciation. Ambivalence is not a real thing. Someone's ambivalence is something either deep down they prefer not be there and it's just like, isn't that powerful, isn't that strong, and isn't that relevant so it hasn't come out yet, or alternatively, they haven't fully discovered how much they value it. Or sometimes both. But it's not a real state of affairs. It's a basic teaching of Kabbalah. There's no real such thing as neutral. Um, so, next week we will get more into details and we will discuss this idea that I'm mentioning here about these two different kinds of animal souls. How does that, or it does that at all manifest in their actual psyche or behavior? Um, because saying what someone is capable of appreciating in their heart of hearts, how much does that actually translate into? Um, right? I don't know. I think you can be um, neutral about something in that, like, you can appreciate it for what it is that you don't want in your life. You can appreciate its value on earth and, like, know that, like, life would be really not yeah, so I would agree with you, but I would just say that that's like looking at something and saying it's gray because you're seeing a checker, uh, chessboard from a distance, so the black and white blurs, that really there's two different things going on there. There's my ability to appreciate things on a universal level, and in that case, I have a positive view on it. 